0: have got to say, that, uh, he did that last service, and it was weird. People don't applaud when you come on stage, but um, you, you can keep doing it. That's awesome. No, just kidding. All right, open up. No, no stop. No. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Open up to Colossians chapter 3 if you've got your Bibles. Um, we are in a series called Palette, And Palette is, the whole concept of it is that we make the foundation, like the palette of our life, a lot of things that are not foundational relationships dreams hopes whatever great things but they, they they're not intended they're not weight bearing institutions or, or relationships they actually if we we utilize them as weight bearing they crumble on us and they disappoint and paul is making the point in the book of colossians the only person that is worthy and worthwhile and and able to handle the weight of our life is Christ, that he is foundational, and that on top of him as our foundation, we have all of our relationships, our hopes, dreams, fears, all that stuff gets added on. And so now we're getting into chapter three, and and he's just talked about how, okay, because of Jesus, you're a new person. And this is stuff, two weeks ago, we talked about this is stuff that's not you anymore. Not because it's icky or bad or naughty, but because it's just not you. And this is stuff that's, that last week we talked about, this is stuff that is you. And now at the tail end of the, the stuff that is you, he gets into this passage where he talks about worship. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and chapter, look at chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 16. But let's go ahead and look at 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you admonish one another and teach one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. All right, if you've been around NBC long enough, you know that worship is more than, than singing. I mean, it, worship is life. Romans 12 says worship is life. It's, it's making my life a sacrifice before God. That's what worship is. But a key part of worship, and the part that Paul's talking about here, is singing. This concept of singing in worship. And with a crowd this big, I, I got to guess that there's lots of you that have had... Like the idea of what worship is, it's going to be different. Even if you grew up in a, in a churchy environment... If I said, what's worship? You would say, well, it's like this or this or this. And it might be totally different. For me, when I was a little kid, we didn't even call like singing in church worship. It was just like, this is the time when the dude up front opens up his hymnal and then we open up our hymnal and we start singing. And then, so that was what that was. It was singing. But when, but the idea of what worship was started for me at least, at least as far as that in my vernacular was when I was like 12, 13, 14 years old, when I got to go into the junior high group at our church. And on Tuesday nights, there was like 12 of us, and we're in this like narrow little room, a narrow little room with smelly junior hires. And we're just, we're in this room, and all of a sudden, some 30-something dude gets up with a guitar, and he's playing this Takamini guitar. And he, why he has a Takamini? He has a Takamini because he can't afford a tailor, but he has a Takamini, and he's playing this music, and, all, and right as he's about to play the music, some volunteer, some favorite kid in the youth group or whatever, hits a button on this object. It's like this square thing, it has this arm and this, this head, and out from the head shoots this beam of light. You know what I'm talking about? It's the overhead projector, and a beam of light comes out of it, and it p- paints the picture on the wall of all these different lyrics and stuff of, of that we started to sing. And for me, all of a sudden, I was transfixed. This guy, the, I don't know if it was the lyrics or, the, or, the, or how he was playing the song or what, but it connected the way that music that I was, had in other parts of the church didn't connect. This stuff was like, it, it it came right to my heart, and it, was, it blew my mind. Twelve people in a room, and I felt like I was at the throne of God. It was awesome. And then, every summer, we'd go to a camp. Now there's not just 12 of us, there's 300 of us. 300 smelly junior hires all together. And all of us are listening to the guy on stage with a Takamini guitar because he can't afford a tailor. And he's leading worship off an overhead projector shooting words up on the wall. And it was amazing. And so I thought, this, this is one of the most cool things I've ever experienced. So I invited my friend Victor to come. Victor wasn't a believer at the time. He grew up in a church tradition. Uh, he grew up in, in a Catholic tradition, but he never connected. And uh, so Victor, Victor understood liturgy, but the idea of like singing songs, that was kind of foreign to him. So now this dude who's unaccustomed to this environment gets dropped into this room, this narrow little room with 12 other smelly junior hires, and he's like looking around. And this dude with the guitar gets up and he starts to play some songs. They put they turn off all the lights. They put words on the wall and everyone starts to sing. And Victor's like, what is going on? He's looking around and some people look like they're really in pain. Like and he's just like, and so Victor doesn't sing. Victor just like, he just like sits there like, this is the weirdest. And in his mind, he's like, I have just stepped into a cult. I got to get out of this environment before they give me the Kool-Aid because this is not going right. This is bad news. And for a long time, Victor was like that. Now, For you here, again, we have people that came from all different kinds of backdrops at Manuka Bible Church. For you, how many of you grew up in a churchy environment where singing songs, whether it was out of a hymnal or up on the wall, um, that was kind of, yeah, that was pretty normal? Okay, hands down. How many of you did not grow up in that environment? That was not really what you grew up with? Okay. Every church got a lot of people. Now, for those of you who just raised your hand, wasn't it weird when you first started going to church, and you're like looking around at people and just like going what is wrong with these people? I have, no, I have no clue what any of these words are. I know the words, but I don't know the songs. And everyone's really into it. Some people look like, again, they're really in pain. And then at points in the service, people just start volunteering. <laughs> and if the worship guy up front doesn't see that hand, they say, okay, it's cool, I got two. <laughs> and it's just like, what is going on? And now, if the, you, were, you were foreign to that for a while, but then all of a sudden, you're like, oh... It's worship. That's what they call it. Worship. It's weird. It's awkward, but it's what these Christian people do, so it's cool. And and all of a sudden we have this really odd picture of what worship is and what worship isn't. Worship, the idea of worship in song has divided churches and messed people up. And so we're going to talk about it because Paul talks about it. He makes a big point of nailing down the fact that this concept of worship in song is something that believers do. At the top of your notes, oh, no, did I totally, I totally did. <laughs> this happens to me like every other service. Totally lose my notes. Uh, can I borrow some of the notes? <laughs> Nobody? Does anyone have notes? All right, yeah, Jenny, thank you. Thanks, Joe. You got to have notes. All right, at the top of your notes, I put this. I, um, there's a, this guy who does surveys, and he said that what taking surveys and trying to understand an, uh, uh, an environment, a, a people, a socio political people, trying to understand them. What it is is it's, it's defining reality accurately. That's what a proper survey does is it defines reality accurately. And as I was listening to that podcast about this guy who takes surveys, I'm like, that's what worship is. Worship is defining reality accurately, but it's one step further. It's defining and responding to reality accurately because the reality is that there is a God and that he is worthy of our praise. So a person defines and responds to reality accurately when they realize that they were crafted to worship. We see five awesome attributes of that, that reality in this passage in the context of what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3, verses 16. And so the, the first of the five attributes is this. It's rational. Worship is rational. Rational. It is based in truth, not just based in emotion. It's rational. Worship is based upon a real person who really created me to really glorify Him. If you take a look at the beginning of that that part, that verse there in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so what Paul is saying is this, There's this truth about... This is before the Gospels were written. So it's not like they're reading the Bible. But they're saying that the, the message of Jesus... This is something that we should be teaching each other. But not just teaching each other. We should be singing it too. Because this is truth. It's a real person. This really happened. And when we are singing, what we're saying is... I agree with this reality. This is true. This isn't just mystic. This isn't just emotion. This is something that is built and based in truth. That this God actually as opposed to all other gods, he doesn't just want me to worship him because he's great and he's wrathful. This God cares for the relational dynamic of what's taking place. And so this rational decision is, is made. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, uh, wrote when he was talking about worship, he was saying, you know, we can see worship all throughout the Bible. The fact that God calls his people into worship, you know, not just worship and song, but just into worship. We see that in the Exodus. When, when the Pharaoh goes, uh, or when, when Moses goes to the Pharaoh, he does not go up to the Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you need to let my people go because slavery is oppressive and this is unjust. And let them be free so that they can choose their own destiny. He doesn't say that. I mean, slavery is unjust. It is awful. But that's not what he, he goes to. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, let my people go so that my people can go and worship. So they can actually be in an environment out of this oppression where they can actually worship God. The purpose of the liberation, the purpose of the exodus was to give the margin and the opportunity for God's people to worship. And then they get out of, uh, out of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai. And the first thing God makes in this, this love pact between God and man is the Ten Commandments. And the first of those is this, don't worship anyone but me. You're going to have lots of things that are going to be vying for your attention, lots of great stuff. But as soon as you make those good things, ultimate things, they're an idol. And as soon as that happens, things go sideways, And it's going to go sideways in your families. It's going to go sideways in your country. It's going to be messed up. Don't do that. And as time went on, they listened to that truth for about five minutes. And they walked away and decided to just do whatever they wanted to do. And they got into idolatry and everything else. And God continued to warn them through the prophets. Listen, if you do this, it's going to bring a world of hurt on you. Outside countries are going to come in and invade you and take you out. And that's what happened. In the exile, God's people were taken from this centralized location, the promised land, which was theirs, and they were just spread out. And if you look at the map today, they were spread out to Asia. They were spread out to Spain. They were spread out to Africa. Every direction they're going. And so the people of God are just like, this is horrible. We don't have a set. We don't have a land. We don't, we barely have a people. We're spread thin. This is awful. But Isaiah gives a window into that God knew what he was doing. Because God says to the the prophet, at the end of prophet Isaiah, he says, you know what's going to happen? The exile isn't the end of the story. See, what we have here is the people who know the one true God and they're just spreading out all across the land. They're going to people who've never heard of the one true God. They're worshiping the one true God in lands who've never heard of him. And one day I'm going to bring those people, those foreign people to this concept, into the fold and they are going to worship me. Jesus comes, the incarnation takes place, Jesus dies on the cross, and then at Pentecost, 50 uh, days later, all of a sudden you have all these people coming back into Jerusalem. This is the payoff from, from God's promise. All these other lands with all these different races and countries and nationalities are coming back into Jerusalem to do what? To worship. And they hear about the fact that this the Messiah has come, that Jesus is he, and then they give their life to him and they realize that the temple system, that's old school. Like I don't have to go to a location, like a temple, and be in a temple and do a certain amount of rituals for God to hear me. I can worship God every moment of every day, everywhere I go. And it's amazing. It's phenomenal. And that continues on into the new world. discussion at the end of the Bible. See, at the end of the Bible, God says, I'm going to restore all things. And this new world, where when heaven actually comes down and restores the entire planet, the new world that we live in is going to be a place where humans are going to be their utmost humanity. They're going to be the best humans, not just the most like polished or they never do naughty things type. It's the idea that humans who are created to worship God will be in an environment where they're able to do that without any limitations, without any blockades because of sin. And it's amazing. It's that When we worship, we're, we're, uh, we're harnessing the prefrontal cortex like we talked about a couple weeks ago. We're making a decision. This is truth. This is truth, and therefore I'm making a choice to respond in it. So when we're singing songs, we're responding rationally. But it's not just rationally. It's also emotional. Man, if you're, if you're someone that's just purely rational in your, in your faith, with, in your walk with God or your worship, man, you're missing out. And you're probably really annoying because the reality is that God, the whole package is this rational and emotional side. How do we know that, that it's emotional? We'll take a look again at what Paul says. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's saying, you need to teach. Here's truth. <laughs> Let people know the truth. Bam. But don't just, don't just teach. Let the teaching not just take place just from some person up front or some person in a circle. Teach to the songs. Let the songs teach. Because, you, because in, and why? Because what we do, when we take truth and we mix it with melody, it resonates differently. It hits us in our heart. Why do we like music? Why do we listen to music? Because it connects with our heart. Paul is saying truth is important, but we also need to attach that to something that has a vehicle to help us remember it and help it just drive deeper. It's an emotional response of gratitude. Worship gives me a platform to express my gratitude. It gives me the opportunity to actually respond accordingly. If you take a look at at verse 15, chapter 3, verse 15, he kind of ends it that way. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. At the end of 16, after telling him to sing in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, he says, do this with gratitude in your hearts to God. The gratitude side says, this is, this is not just a story. This resonates with me. Have you heard about the dude uh, from Massachusetts? The guy from Massachusetts that um, found something in his stew? Do you guys hear about this? Okay. This is a legit story. This is for real. You can look it up later. Google it. This guy from, it's, I think he's a cop. Um, six years ago, he's eating some stew. And as he's eating the stew, like he bites down and all of a sudden he bites down on something hard, which for me grosses me out. Cause I'm always like, it's a finger. It's a finger. Someone's ring. It's a finger. It's just, but for me, and sometimes I just like, I'm just going to keep on chewing and swallow quick. So I'm not even thinking about it. Oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. This guy does that, and am like, what in the world? He takes out, and he finds this rock. And he's like, what? well, that's a good story. He puts it in his pocket, goes home, chucks it at his daughter. He says, hey, you want this? It's like, I found this in my stew. She's like, okay. And she puts it on her dresser. And he, from that point on, he's just telling people, oh, yeah, you've eaten some weird stuff. Well, I ate a rock one time when I was eating stew. It's a great story. A couple weeks ago, he starts to have this idea that he, maybe he should take another look at that rock. It's a really pretty little rock. And he takes it to uh, someone to, like a specialist, and the specialist looks at it and looks back at him and says, "This is not a rock. This is a rare lavender pearl. What were you eating? Oyster stew? And you didn't think about that. I mean anyway that rock that he chucked at his daughter for her to have on her dresser is worth right around 15,000 dollars. If you want to bid on it, it the bidding starts next Saturday at five grand, and it's going to go north of that. How do you think he walked away from that appointment? Do you think he just like put it back in his pocket and went up to his daughter, here you go, put it back on your dresser. No, because the thing that was just a story before that point is no longer just a story. It's now this personal reality and he understands how priceless this is, how incredibly valuable this is that's what happens in worship when we come in here we're not just okay, we're singing songs because that's what everyone is doing we're actually saying this is not just true this is my truth this impacted me this has changed my life my mom i i gotta say this really quick because we don't have a whole lot of time but my mom for a lot of her growing up here she was an atheist she did not believe in god in fact she she de-evangelized her parents when she was in first grade by talking them out of going to church it's like why do you go there I know that money doesn't go to God. <laughs> and so she talked my, my grandparents out from going to church. And she tried to talk all of her friends out of believing in God because it's such a dumb idea. And she grew up and she loved Christmas and she loved Christmas music. Like she knew Christmas music like the back of her hand, but she just t- didn't attach it to God or Jesus. She just didn't believe in that stuff. And then she's a freshman in high school. And a friend of hers who's a Christian invited her to, a, to an event. And at that event, she actually shocked herself and everyone else by giving her life to Jesus. Jesus. It was weird. But the weirder thing was that Christmas. All of a sudden, when everyone's starting to play Christmas music again, my mom is like, do you know what this is about? I've known these songs forever, but now I know what they're about. And like from that point on, my mom has been just dyed in the wool a Christmas fan because it's not just truth. It's not just a good story. It's now personal. That takes place when we worship God. We worship Him in gratitude. Not only rationally, it's emotional, but not only emotionally, it's applicable. Worship gives me the means to transfer ultimate worth from God to gods, or from, from, from a God to God. So basically, every one of us in this room worships. No matter how far from God or how much you disbelieve God, everyone worships. You might worship your own confidence, your own intellect, a relationship you're in, your status, whatever, but we all worship. The difference is saying that I'm going to say, The the root, the English, the old English root of worship is worship. And it's saying, when I'm worshiping God, I'm saying, you are more worthy. You're worth more to me than all these other things. All my insecurities, all my hopes, my fears, passions, whatever. You're more worthy. Uh, A guy, uh, in in Psalm 95, at the end of it, uh, it it talks about singing praises out to God and, and worshiping him. And then the last part says, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. And really brilliant theologians uh, who are far smarter than me, some of them uh, don't believe that the psalmist really believed in one God, that they were monotheistic. Because clearly, he's just, they're just saying that the guy that's on our team is greater than everyone else's team captain. God is God over gods. But I don't believe that's true. If you look at the, if you look at the uh, context of the psalms, they're saying, listen, everybody worships something or someone. We're just saying that they're all False. All those are, are just, they're not true. There's one truth, and we worship him. The guy who is, uh, uh, someone from the Calvinist, uh, Calvin Institute of Worship said, this, said it this way, worship or worship is an act of affirming God's worth, not boosting God's self-esteem, not mere deference or flattery, and not appeasement, but worship is fundamentally a declaration that God is worthy. Worship declares how inherently worthy God is to be praised, to be confessed to, to be preached about, and to be served. It's saying that above everything that I've walked in this room with, you are more worthy than that. In the first uh, Harry Potter book, you have Harry Potter coming across this mirror, this massive mirror. this mirror. Uh, it's the mirror of Erised. And he goes up to this mirror, and it's really trippy, huge weird mirror. And when he sees the mirror, he looks at it, and he sees something else in the mirror behind him. What does he see? His parents, which is creepy because his parents are dead. And he's never met his parents. But instantly, he knows that those are his parents. Instantly, he all of a sudden is transfixed. This. My whole life, I've been without these people. My whole life, I've never had this in my life. And now they're here. I'm seeing them. They can't take his eyes off it. Later on, he has Ron, Me- Ron, Ron Weasley coming over to try to see it too because he wants Ron to see his parents. He wants Ron to see Harry Potter's parents. See their real look at them. But when Ron gets in front of the mirror, what does he see? Himself. He sees himself as a sports champion, a captain. Harry Potter's mentor, Dumbledore, explains to him, now that you found this mirror, we have to hide it. Because men have wasted their lives by staring into this mirror. Why? Well, the mirror of Erised, the word Erised, it's, I would never have picked up on this unless someone told me, Erised is desire spelled backwards. This is the mirror of desire. When one looks into this mirror, they are seeing, this would complete me. This, would be the f- this is all that I need to be happy. This is all that I need for my life to be whole. And all of that is a lie. Because there isn't a relationship, a status, a job. There's nothing that can complete us that will make us whole outside of Christ. That's why when we come to worship, it's like hitting a reset button of saying, listen, there's, absolute, there's tons of gods that we worship all throughout our life, our family, our rela- all that stuff. When we come in here, it's almost like a reset button when we sing to say, yeah, all that stuff is important, but it's not God. I am transferring ultimate worth from those things that I'm investing my life into, into him, amen? All of a sudden, we have that as our reality. So it, it is rational, it's emotional, it's applicable but it's also flexible. This is one of my favorite parts of worship. It's so pliable. But it's crazy because as Christians, we don't make it pliable. We make it very rigid. How should we do worship? The way I like it. It's like Burger King. Have it your way. It's my, now, this is how I want it. I want. I want my worship like this. Um, if you take a look at this passage, Paul just paints this amazing picture of this. He says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and teach you and admonish you with one another with wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. He's dropping a diversity of styles. He's not saying, okay, here's the way. He's pointing out a, a ton of different ways. I mean, I grew up, if you've been in church long enough, you've had people disagree about music style, right? Okay, liturgical, non-liturgical, traditional, contemporary. Like I I grew up, I remember like when they brought drums into the church, my conservative church that I grew up in. It was like, whoa, you cannot have drums in a worship service because you start hitting drums and people just they start doing stuff (laughs) that it's going to lead to them dancing. And the last thing we can have in a worship service is dancing or drums. Until you read Psalm 150, that says. Praise God with, with the harps and with the, with the stringed instruments and, and with, the, with other musical instruments and dance. Praise him with dancing and praise him with drums. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It said clash of cymbals. Yeah, percussion, drums. Okay, but not loud. Because, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't want it loud. True. Until he says in the next verse, and resounding cymbals. Make it loud. Make it something that is declaring this amazing truth. And and all of a sudden you see scripture points to a different picture than we sometimes hold on to. And then you're like, okay, well, whatever you do, it can't be shallow. Don't have shallow worship. Okay, worship should be something that's non-repetitive, okay? Let's have some, like, 15 stanzas. And then that's how we know, like, we got to the meat of it. I remember when I first went to Moody um, as a freshman, because I I came from, like, hearing a lot of different hymns and non-hymns and other stuff. And I remember thinking, I remember hearing that we really need to have deeper worship music, that the music that's out there today is very shallow and, and, and just, it's very repetitive. And we don't want repetitive music that just has a couple of words. It's just so pointless. It's dumbing down our worship services. And I'm like, yeah, stupid, shallow worship music. And then I got to the second semester and that's when I read the new Testament and the second semester at my freshman year at Moody, all of a sudden I get to this passage in revelation chapter four, where it says that the angels in heaven around the throne Sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And it doesn't say, and then they get to the next verse, which is much more deep than that. It says, they sing that first verse over and over and over again. What like three and a half minutes. That's a long, no, no, not three and a half minutes, all day and all night. So I, I so wish that, when I, when I heard that, I'm like, what in the world? So basically what we're seeing from Scripture is this amazing reality that worship is far more pliable than we, than we make it. If you're in a church setting where all they're singing is hymns, if, if you, you get plucked out of Manuka Bible Church and you're at some other church and all they're singing is hymns, you sing them and belt them out. Why? Because they're built and based in the reality, the rational reality that God is who he says he is. The resurrection took place. And, and out of the emotional gratitude, you're, you're expressing these songs out of gratitude. You're transferring this, the God that you have in your life to the one true God, and you belt it. And if you're in a church setting where they don't sing songs from 200 years ago, they sing songs from two weeks ago, you belt those too. You sing them out. And if you're like, well, hold on a second, this, this worship CD that I have, I don't know if I totally agree with the theology of the church that this came from. I don't either. But if the song itself is talking about the reality we have in the resurrected Christ, it gives us an opportunity to express gratitude to him, belt it. That's truth. Affirm that truth. That gives you the pliability and the flexibility to worship God in a multiplicity of different settings and will not train you and condition you to be the type of person that stands in a church service and crosses your arms because it's not done the way that you like it. I'm talking to old people as well as young people cuz we're just as traditional. If you're young and I'm pointing to me like I'm young. People younger than me, you're just as traditional. All of us are. It's human nature. Instead, let us be a people that understand that the worship of God, if it's built and based on the resurrected Christ, gives us a vehicle to express that gratitude. Let's take that opportunity no matter what type of music, no matter what setting. Amen. Okay, so if they if they have zero instruments on stage, use the instrument God gave you in your mouth, in your throat. If you can't sing, join the club. I can't either. Belt it. Belt it anyway. Because this is something that we have an opportunity to worship the one true God. It's rational, it's emotional, it's applicable, it's flexible, and it's also transformational. This thing of worship was intended to leave the building. Worship does not end when the music stops. That's a show. Music is a vehicle for worship that continues out of this room. Worship should bring you before the throne and then remind you that the throne follows you home. It's going out there. It has to. Otherwise, you're going to fall into the same trap that people in my generation, the generation before, and the generation all the way back to the Hebrews wandering in the wilderness had, which is this. I can compartmentalize my worship to God. I can go. I can do right, the right sacrifices, say the right words. I can do all the right stuff, and I could walk out in the parking lot and nothing has changed. And you see all the way, the prophets having the most difficult time. God speaking to the prophets saying, you guys do all the right sacrifices, but I'm sick of your sacrifices. Well, hold on a second. You told us to make these sacrifices. Those sacrifices were a vehicle for your heart. They're a vehicle for you to come close to me. And instead, what you've done, instead, you've gotten yourself into this situation where you think that that's the end all. And it doesn't matter how you operate outside of that setting. The two biggest things that that the prophets spoke against the Old Testament was people having this wonderful worship experience and walking away from it and falling into idolatry where they're worshiping stuff over God or people over God or relationships over God and marginalizing the poor. It was idolatry and marginalizing the poor over and over and over again. And God says, how can you worship me and you do those two things? How? Through the prophet Amos, God said this, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. I want your heart. I want it to be something that starts here and continues out there. I put on the bottom of your notes, we come in here as a worshiper, let the songs break you and heal you, humble you and stoke you up, then leave this place. Leave this place as a person who continues to worship as you live out the good news Jesus bought for you wherever you go and whatever you do, and then we get to come back here again and do it all over again. That's, that's what we do. Because when the prophets say that we sh- God's not even interested in our songs, we then have Paul who knew his Old Testament who knew this problem, and yet he tells us to sing. And the only reason he tells us to sing is because he knows the secret. The game changer is Jesus. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all w- wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God in gratitude in your hearts and whatever you do, whatever, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's not a show. It doesn't end here. It actually leads to whatever we're doing we're worshiping. Romans 12, again, says that our whole life as sacrifice is worship. This is the launching pad to that. This is the truth that fuels that action. Because if all we're doing is social action but we don't have the worship of God, that's humanism. And that's totally relative based on whatever culture you're in. The, the Germans in the, in the 1930s thought that their social action was completely justified, but it was minus the worship of God. It's just humanism. It's like whatever's going right now works. But on the flip side, for Christians, worship minus social action is hypocrisy. We cannot possibly divorce the two, which would be amazing if I ended this message with an opportunity for you to do something about it, huh? That'd be really cool. Well, we're not going, no, just kidding. We are, we have something. Everyone go ahead and take out that white plate that you have. And as you're taking that out, I want you to uh, give it up for Ali Selk.
1: Good morning. Um, as most of you know, food pantry month is this month and we're focusing on um, food pantry here. And this week we're also gonna focus on hunger in our area. One in five children in Grundy County is in a food insecure home. Which means 20% of the kids in Grundy County do not know where their next meal is coming. One in five kids in Chicago is also in this same predicament. So our, what we're dealing with in Grundy County is what we're dealing with also in a city environment. Which really struck a chord with me when I was going through the numbers this week. Because you don't drive through our community and you don't see the poverty, you don't see that people need help, and that's I think a lot of us don't think about it because we don't we don't see it. 33% of the Manuka, um, the kids in Manuka schools, are on reduced or free lunch program. That's a lot, and there, that means that there is a need here in our own community. Um, and one of the reasons that you know things can come up. You know, there's divorce. There's single parents trying to make it. You've got people being laid off. You've got people losing their jobs completely. You've got people getting hurt on their jobs, and they're on disability. So it's the face of of hunger is not just somebody who lives in a very poor home or a very poor area. It's many of us in this church when we have down times. And it may not be something that is chronic, but it happens, and maybe somebody's down and out for a month, maybe two months, maybe a year, maybe a week. But that doesn't have to happen when we live in a world with so much. And we, live in, we have this church with so many people. And that's why this weekend we're asking you to personally dig down deep and figure out a way to help with the hunger. Um, our mission statement is real with God, real with each other, real in the world. And how many times are you really real with each other? If you have something going on in your life and somebody's like, hey, how are you? And you're like, oh, I'm fantastic. You're not fantastic. You're struggling. You're having a hard time. Now, I don't mean you need to air out your dirty laundry to every single person, but you know, if you've got a close friend or if somebody asks, you know, maybe say something. Maybe say, "Hey, I'm having a hard time," because you never know. You just never know. I'm going to share a story with you. Um, There was a family that I met here at Manduka Bible, and really didn't know them very well. And just talking to them um, realized that they were having some hard times. They were working, but just ends weren't meeting. Things were just really stressed out. And they said one thing to me. You know, it's like, do I feed my kids? Do I pay my bills? What is the toss-up? And as a parent, which most of us are in here, you never want to have that be the predicament you're in. Do I pay my bills or do I feed my kids? And it just really struck a chord with me. And this person said, you know, pray for us. Pray we can figure out what we're going to do, a solution, something. And so I got off the... um, the message with this person, and I sat down and I prayed, and then I thought, you know what? How easy would it be just to help? Let's see what let's see what can happen. And I felt a little nudge from the man upstairs, and uh, I sent out some emails, and I sent out some emails to my small group. I sent out emails to just random people in the community and said, hey, there's somebody in our in our community that's really struggling, and I just you know they've got several kids. It's just really hard right now. If you guys feel led to give, you know, you can drop off stuff at my house. I can come pick up, you know, whatever. Our small group went above and beyond. We had food like crazy, gift cards, gas cards. And then one day I was sitting at home and the doorbell started to ring. People were just dropping stuff off on the, my porch. People were calling me, hey, I'm at Jewel. Can you come pick up? I bought a couple bags of groceries for that family. And it just exploded I mean, I think my husband and I kind of try to put some kind of number, and I'm saying maybe about $700 with groceries and all kinds of cards and stuff. And so we took a couple of suburban loads over to this family and uh, gave them what, you know, they needed to get by for a little while. And then my husband comes home and he says, you know, somebody that we're good friends with is really having a hard time. Do you have anything left? Do I? <laughs> I'm like, go to the kitchen table. We loaded up their pickup the next weekend. And then that same person came to us and said, hey, I've got a friend who's having a hard time. Is there any way I can share what you gave me? And I said, wait a minute, no. We gave you that because you need it. I've got more stuff for you. I mean, it just kept coming and coming, and it just, it was just so amazing. And I'm not telling you this story because I want praise for any of this. I don't. I'm telling you this because sometimes we are too quick to say, oh, I'm just going to pray for you. Prayer is powerful, and we know that. But sometimes, if you feel that nudge, you need to act on that nudge. And sometimes just a simple little act can turn into something really, really great. Um, we're going to do two things this weekend. We are going to start something in Manuka Bible Church called Food Pantry Weekend. Um, the fourth Sunday of the month, we're going to try to coincide it with uh, communion. We are asking the church to bring one non-perishable item for our emergency food pantry. And our emergency food pantry is for anybody here at the church. You know, you're going through a hard time, you're struggling, call the office. Somebody can get you a box of food um, and get some help for you that way. So don't ever feel like you can't utilize it. It is totally there for you. So we are asking for you guys to do that. It doesn't have to be anything expensive. Get a can of corn, get some cereal, whatever you feel led to give. And the first one is going to be next weekend. And we will make sure and put announcements in the bulletin for that. Also, what we're going to do is, you guys have your paper plates. Um, And you're probably wondering why you have paper plates. A couple weeks ago, I was at Food Pantry, and we did a survey from the people of Food Pantry. And we put those surveys on paper plates, and we put them out on the atrium and in the hallway, on the boxes and on the grocery carts. I don't know if any of you have read them. Those are reasons why people in our community are hungry. It's reasons why they have to come to Food Pantry to survive. And I encourage you to go read and see, you know, what is going on in our community? Why are these people struggling? So then I thought more. I said, you know what, that'd be really cool to show people what's going on. And I said, but what is better than that is to do. So what I want you to do is I want you to think about something you can do as a person, as a family, just one time a month for the year 2015 to help hunger in our community and I want you to write it down on your plate. I want you to take that plate home, put it on the fridge, bulletin board, somewhere where you can remember. And we have some ideas, if you uh, if you will. The first one is give. I know when um, Lyle Salk was up here last weekend or two weeks ago, he said to give. Food pantry does need monetary help as well. Volunteer at the food pantry. On your bulletin, there is an option where you can volunteer on the tear off sheet. Tear that off and um, turn it in to somebody, there are several days that you can volunteer, not just Wednesdays, there's lots of behind-the-scenes you guys can do. One of your missions can be just to donate an item once a month. That could be your, what you decide to put on your plate, that once a month you will, yes, remember to bring something non-perishable to help, help with our emergency food pantry. Buy groceries for a neighbor. You know somebody in your community or a friend that's just having a hard time. When you're at Jewel or Walmart or wherever you shop, Grab a couple extra things, put them on their porch. You'll never know how just a simple act like that can just make somebody's week. Make a meal. If you don't want to buy groceries for them, maybe make them a nice meal. Take it over to them and maybe make extra so they have something to eat for the next couple days. Classroom impact. Do you guys have young kids or, I guess, older kids too who, you know, might know somebody in their class who's having trouble? We know 33% of the kids are having trouble finding lunch. So write a check to the the school and put a name and you wanna pay for their lunch for a week. It's easy to do. Invite a family over for dinner. That is such a nice way to come over, say let's have a meal together. You know, It's a good way to talk to them about the gospel, talk to them about Jesus and show them that you care and that that you love them. And then make enough for them to take some home. And these are all great ideas. Get creative. Come up with your own idea. But the thing I really challenge you to do is just keep your ears open. You know, I think sometimes we're too quick to say, okay, well, they've got that problem. They've got this problem. But if you just break it down to help one person, it's really amazing what just helping one person can do. Because then it can kind of go here and here and here. And the effect can just be fantastic. Thank you.
0: So the thing about worship is that it's not just a song. Because if it's just a song, all it is is a show. That's what the prophets called against. That's what Amos called against. What we need to be instead is we need to be a people that let, again, this be the launching pad that goes out there. I found out, because the first person that I I actually knew personally that raised their hands in worship, because, again, that freaked me out. I'm like, seriously, what are they doing? Um, Was my youth pastor. He said, oh, when I lift my hands up, what I'm saying is it's kind of like the old Westerns that I used to watch growing up, it's like whenever someone came that was more powerful than you in a Western, the other guy would raise their hands, basically saying, I I surrender. You're you're in charge, you're in control. He says, that's why I do it. I'm like, that makes a lot more sense than the volunteer thing. (laughs) When we worship, when we worship in song, we are saying, I surrender to the sovereign, holy, perfect God who loves this world. And when we leave this place, We continue singing that song with our life. Amen? When we take our offering, we do the same thing. That's how we we make an impact on this community. And so let's go ahead and pray for that, that God will help us be good stewards, and then we're going to finish off with some music to let us totally communicate what we've been talking about. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the fact that you are sovereign, you are good, you are holy. And God, instead of uh, being someone who simply created everything and walked away, you continually... Interact, intervene, and intercede on our behalf. And we just can't get over that. Your grace and your generosity is huge. Lord, I pray that you help us, instead of having a show where we just simply show up and do something and walk away unchanged, Lord, I pray that you help the song of our life reflect you and your glory, your grace, your truth, and we'll give you the thanks for it. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.